Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Jim Tedford. Jim has been actively engaged in the animal welfare movement for more than 33 years. He currently serves as president and CEO for the Society of Animal Welfare Administrators, SAWA, a professional association of leaders in the field of animal welfare and animal care and control. Jim also serves as president and CEO for the National Council on Pet Population, a subsidiary of SAWA. Jim started his career serving on the front line of animal welfare. He's been CEO for organizations in New York, Louisiana, and Tennessee. He served as a regional director for the Humane Society of the United States and as volunteer board chair for SAWA. Jim has presented at national and regional conferences on various animal welfare issues, organizational development, and not-for-profit management. Jim holds a degree in animal science from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. He and Anne share their home in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee with several adopted pets, four dogs, a parrot, and a horse. Jim, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks, Stacey. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I know. It's great. It's great to have you back and back so soon. Uh, Jim joined me for an interview back at episode number 199. So if you want to hear about the specifics about Jim's work, I'd recommend you go to the communitycatspodcast.com, go in the search bar, you can put in number 199 or Tedford, and his show will pop right up. And you can certainly hear our conversation that we had a oh, few few months ago. But Jim, it's, it's great to have you back. And I, I have brought you back intentionally today because I'm really interested in hearing about what Sawa's experience has been in the role with assisting uh, hurricane victims. We've been inundated with hurricanes this past fall, lots of animals displaced from their homes. And I'm just curious what Sawa has been doing and how they've been involved. Absolutely. It has been a pretty horrific season this year for hurricanes. So we, uh, we've, we've all been more active and more involved than we, we would really like to be, <laughs> and certainly more than, than is, is typical. Interestingly, Stacey, I think the, the great thing about SAWA, the great thing about our organization in general, is that we are a network. We are a true network of professionals who are engaged in this work on a full-time basis, day-to-day, year-to-year throughout our country. And, and because of that, we, we are able to bring people together to, to work on issues of common interest. And in a situation like a disaster response, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for folks to share resources, whether that be human resources in the form of crews to come in and actually help physically do animal rescue or care for animals in the aftermath of a disaster, or whether it's in helping to transport animals to places around the country where they may stand a better chance of being placed, certainly particularly in the aftermath of a disaster when the numbers tend to to just explode. Uh, So that's really kind of our role, our, our central role, is to really mobilize that network of professionals. We've got over 1,100 members around the U.S. and 
and and a few other countries, and to be able to to sort of bring those people together to to have somebody in Texas call me and say, hey, I really need some help. I need I really need some skilled labor here to help us with animal rescue. Can you can you help me mobilize some of our colleagues to to get down here? And that's really our strength. We sort of know where the the need is, and then we identify the resources that can fill those needs and and put the two together and and through that network really have a greater impact kind of globally on the animals who who find themselves in need in a situation like a a post-hurricane. So you're working with regards to transporting animals as well as the movement of supplies, as well as helping assist with directing funding in the right places. Is 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 that all of the above, all of those things you're you're involved with? Absolutely. We are too. We are definitely involved with all of that to a degree. I, again, our role really is more in terms of making those connections between the folks who have a need and the folks who have resources that can fill that need. So um, one of the first needs when a hurricane is approaching, for example, is most organizations that find themselves in the path of that storm really want to get the animals that they have in their facilities evacuated to safety somewhere. So that's sort of step one. It's how do we get those animals moved out and to a place where they're they're going to be safe? Particularly those animals who are already available for adoption. If they're already ready to be placed, then they can be sent, you know, all over the country to to organizations who can absorb them into their adoption programs. And that frees up that space in those shelters so that after the storm, the animals who are rescued or who are displaced from their homes have a place to go for temporary shelter while their their owners um, have a chance to sort of recover and then hopefully find them in, in those facilities. So it's a, it, it's sort of a, a multi-part uh, effort that, that we get involved with in, in helping to undertake. SOA for a number of years has been part of a coalition called NARSC, which stands for National Animal Rescue and Sheltering Coalition. And there are a number of national organizations who are involved in that coalition. And they, there are folks who are very highly trained in disaster deployment who really can orchestrate the response both before and after a disaster. And, and really, we sort of wait typically to hear from them, those experts on where the needs are and what they need. And then we can mobilize either our entire membership or we can mobilize members in neighboring states or kind of whatever whatever the need happens to be. We mobilize the appropriate folks to respond. So it's a it's a it's a very well highly organized effort that we consider ourselves a part of and are actually honored to be a part of that. On the flip side of that, aside from that sort of organized effort in advance, we also have got those relationships with leaders and organizations from all over the country. So if I get a phone call from a leader in South Florida or South Texas when they see a disaster coming and they say, I know that in three days we are going to have a need for skilled crews to come in and help with temporary sheltering or with swift water rescue or whatever, now I, I can actually reach out to other members who have got the resources to come in and help. 
And uh, it's it's remarkable what happens when these groups work together. Sadly, there also are those situations where they don't always work that well together. And we, we really try to, to mitigate that as best we can. There are always those situations where folks who probably are very well-intentioned and very well-meaning self-deploy to a disaster zone. And um, unfortunately, they end up falling outside of the coordinated effort and in many cases end up doing probably as much harm as they do but just because they're they're in the way and things get really confused the folks who live in live and work in in typical disaster zones those areas that are prone to things like hurricanes you know this is this season has not been their first rodeo these guys have been through this they've been through it before and they know exactly how to respond they're very well prepared they have a memoranda of understanding established within their states and between states so they they are able to sort of put a plan in place that's really a well-oiled machine. And oftentimes you, you get these well-meaning folks who kind of end up coming in and, and they can they can actually rock the boat in that well-oiled machine and can can cause some some serious issues or can slow down progress. So that's the very first thing we always say to everybody in our membership and beyond in the industry, and that is do not self-deploy to any disaster zone. Wait until you're actually called for, for assistance before you respond, because there's a good chance you'll end up being more, do, be doing more harm than good in the long run. So based on what I have read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like the Texas situation with the animals seems to be more severe than with Florida. Am I correct in that assumption or, or not? I would say that's a, a pretty a pretty safe assessment. Uh, Florida was the way that we sort of described it, and I've talked to folks in, in both disaster zones extensively. And the folks in Florida say, you know, our event was really a wind event. It was a, it was a relatively fast moving storm. It kept moving, so while the damage was widespread. It wasn't as severe because it kept moving. It wasn't as severe as was it was originally anticipated in most communities. I think there are certainly some communities that were much harder hit than others. There's no question about that. In Texas, the challenge was that that storm came on over land and then just camped out in South Texas for several days. So theirs turned out to be that the severity of it really was was based in the amount of rain that they got and the flooding issue. So it was more of a water event than a wind event. And, uh, and that's a really, that's a huge challenge. If you've seen the, the video of, of entire neighborhoods in the Houston area where, you know, families, entire lives, all their belongings are, are sitting out in piles by a curb while they're they're having to rebuild from scratch. And I know, you know, I, I talked to folks at the Houston SPCA, for example, and they still had crews out on boats five and six days into that disaster. So for there still to be water that and, and, and animals in need of rescue that that far into the event is is pretty unusual. And I've also uh, read a few stories about transporting animals after the storm, before the storm, and concerns about disease. Have those issues 
been addressed or are there lessons being learned that have been learned with regards to transporting animals and the issues of disease, you know, distemper, parvo, various different other diseases being transferred all around the country and making sure everybody has the right paperwork and all that kind of stuff. Have there been bumps in the road or did that work relatively smoothly so far? You know, from everything that I've heard talking to, to the folks at the heart of the, the recovery and response efforts, I think it worked really pretty well. When you consider the volume of animals that were being moved from point A to point B and, and the fact that it's there's a reason they call it a disaster. <laughs> it's, a, you know, that everything has to happen rather quickly. And sometimes best practices kind of can, can tend to get waved waived in those situations. So there's always going to be a little bit more of a risk. But I think the, the beauty of it is, is that most of the animals transported early on were animals who were already in shelter and already um, had, had sort of been in process. So they all already had vaccinations and had had whatever medical tests are necessary and all of that. And then many of the receiving states, even though they have specific requirements for animals coming in from out of state, they're, they're willing to waive those requirements on a temporary basis because of the, the, the circumstances and the fact that, that, that there's a, a much greater sense of urgency. Uh, I don't think we've heard of any serious outbreaks from in, in communities that received numbers of animals from those disasters at all. I think there are certainly isolated instances where that happens. You've got things like heartworm disease, which are very, very prevalent in places like Southeast Texas and throughout the state of Florida. And, and there are other states that receive some of those animals that may see very little in the way of heartworm disease. So those are the kinds of things that we want to certainly keep an eye on and watch out for. But because the organizations handling the bulk of those animals do so very, very carefully and very methodically, we, we have not seen any, any really serious outbreaks of anything. Let's make helping cats in your community easier. Join me and over 10 exceptional leaders for the first ever online cat conference. This virtual conference will be held January 26th through 28th, 2018, and will feature speakers like Brian Cordes of Neighborhood Cats, Hannah Shaw, the Kitten Lady, Katie Lisnick of the Humane Society of the United States, Nell Thompson from Getting to Zero in Australia, and many, many more. This is an affordable opportunity to learn from nationally and internationally known leaders in the field of community cat management and care. To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and sign up today to register. Fees go up on December 1st. Let's make helping cats easier in your community. Recently, I met the founders of Smalls, a Brooklyn-based company that makes human-grade food for cats. They gently cook the food just like you would at home to preserve all the nutrients and then ship it to you frozen. Their food is almost all super high quality meat with no fillers or grains of any sort and just a tiny bit of veggies for vitamins and minerals. As natural hunters and meat eaters, this is exactly the type of food cats need and actually quite similar to my ketogenic diet. I've signed up to try Smalls because I feel that my cats deserve real food that is easy to prepare. Many of you know that I am not a fan of spending time in the kitchen. If you want to see the difference real species-appropriate food can make for yourself, go to smallsforsmalls.com and give it a try. You can get 50% off your first order. So go for it. It seems, too, like uh, there are some organizations in Texas I've noticed mainly, you know, clinics opening up and making sure that the animals that are coming in are getting spayed and neutered. 
I would assume, you know, a couple of weeks after the storm, some of our community cats might be reappearing, those that did survive the wrath of the storm. Is there an extra push or a desire to sort of up the ante on the spay-neuter efforts after a disaster? I don't know that it's really, that there's really any increased effort there. I think the, the goal of, of responsible animal welfare organizations is to make sure that every animal they touch before it goes into permanent placement has has been spayed or neutered. So I don't know that there's any great increased pressure on on getting that done. I think it's just a, a pressure that's always there. Uh, and certainly in those parts of the of the country where overpopulation is still a big concern. You know, it's pretty remarkable when you look at certain places around the U.S. You get into the Pacific Northwest and the upper Midwest and the Northeast and, and you know, you're not seeing overpopulation to the same degree that we, we saw it even just a few years ago, thanks to aggressive spay-neuter programs and all of that. In the South, because A, progressive spay-neuter programs may be a bit behind the, the times um, in terms of their development and proliferation, but also, if you think about it, just from a climate standpoint, the breeding seasons in the South are much longer. You get way down in the deep South. I, I ran the shelter in Louisiana, and the Louisiana SPCA in New Orleans for four years, and, uh, you know, back in those days, every animal we took in was, you know, every animal over a year of age was heartworm positive or, you know, all the cats that came in were pregnant already because they, 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 with the climate being what it is and frankly, the, the food supply, they, there were plenty of dumpsters and, and, uh, and all of that. So, and, and you know, cats... Cats are very resourceful. <laughs> they find a way. Yep. And in a, in, a, in a place like that where the community, where the, the climate is such that it's warm all the time and, and all of that, the breeding season is extended just about year round. So, you know, cats are having three plus litters a year and uh, it's really, really hard to get a handle on it. So there, there's that issue. So the numbers are, are just greater. And then, you know, spay neuter is just now catching up in, in certain parts of the country. It's been very well done and very well orchestrated in certain regions and in other regions it just, you know, has not gotten the, the, the priority that it has in, in other places. So, um, but yeah, that's, I think it's post-disaster. I'm sure there's a little bit of a spike in the need, but, but I think that's just one of those things that's a need on, a, on an ongoing basis. We don't want any animal leaving leaving a shelter anywhere that has not already been, been surgically altered. Right, right. Could you comment um, a little bit on any information that you have with regards to the islands? You know, interestingly... I'm actually still trying to get information about that. We we uh, have had a lot of interest from members who are hearing, particularly from their donors, which is really interesting. I've gotten probably four phone calls from folks who are in my membership who have had donors contact them in their own communities wanting to help out in, for example, Puerto Rico. And we uh, up to now, we have really not been able to get a lot of information on the, the situation around animals in Puerto Rico. I think with any disaster, you know, there tends to be sort of a protocol. And I think that the, the human suffering and human needs tend to always come first and we're doing as much of the human rescue as can be done. And then the animal rescue follows shortly behind that. And at, at really last account for me, um, the, the assessment on the needs for animals in the islands was really just now getting started because the destruction and the human need was so great. And one other 
thought and question I had is um, obviously, but Texas, I think, is the the number one state for cattle. And I think Florida is either number two or number three in the country. So what is the status for farm animals and livestock? How did this storm impact them? You know, the, the, the only large animals that I've heard any reports on out of Texas have been horses, <laughs> excuse me, and the, uh, the situation was pretty dire immediately following the storm. Um, I, I got a call from a contact at the Houston SPCA and they had 120 horses in their custody at that time, right at the, right at the beginning of the storm event. And by the time it was over with that number had more than doubled. Um, they've got, they've got tremendous capacity for housing horses. They've got facilities of their own that, that are, are terrific for that. And then they were able to solicit some additional housing for horses and, and brought in some support from out of state to help manage those populations and make sure that the care that was needed was being, was being provided. So I think horses were probably the, the most affected by that storm. A lot of that area that was affected was, was very urban or suburban. So there were, there were a ton of horses, probably not quite as many cattle and other livestock. I have not actually heard a report on, on the, the impact on, on other types of animals other than, than the companion animals and horses. That's very, very interesting. Um, I wonder, you know, disaster is so, is so terrible, and I feel like we're always so reactive in a disaster, how we behave. Is there anything that we can do preventatively ahead of time to ensure that maybe things won't be so bad when the next storm comes? Yeah, you know, obviously, I think there's a ton that can be done. The, the beauty of this is that the, the two areas most most deeply affected by the, the hurricanes this fall, um, the Houston area, Southeast Texas, and Florida are probably the most prepared places in the entire country when it comes to, to disasters. Those folks have been through this enough that they and they they really they've learned from each event that they've had to, to deal with, and uh, and they're actually extremely prepared. The the downside is is that no matter how prepared you are, you really don't know what the impact is going to be on things like infrastructure until the disaster actually happens. I don't think anybody anticipated that that storm in Southeast Texas, Harvey, would would linger for as many days as it did and cause the extensive flooding. It's flooding like like folks in even in that region that are used to flooding. It's flooding like they've never seen before, and hope to never see again. From my conversations with with, with people down there, so that's the that's the challenge. You can prepare for the the very worst case scenario, and then nature throws you a curve, and you end up getting a, a scenario. Area that nobody could have really anticipated. And so the, the, the trick there is if you are prepared in advance, then your response is going to be far more organized and, and you're going to be able to help far more animals and far more people in your community by having that, that level of preparedness. Things like signing MOUs with, with other agencies, with the agencies that are involved in rescuing humans, um, you know, having a seat at the emergency management centers in the 
communities that are affected so that the animal side of the disaster is well represented. Things like that are really critical to making sure that the response is as good as it can possibly be. As I said, those, those two communities that were impacted this fall are both communities that were incredibly prepared. I talked to Christopher Agostino at, at the Humane Society of Broward County about three days before Hurricane Irma was, was set to, to hit somewhere in Florida. And at that point, it was anybody's guess still for what was exactly what the path was going to be. But I talked to Christopher and, and they, they had already evacuated all of their animals. They had emptied out the entire Humane Society, probably 300 animals. I talked to Tammy Fox at the Florida Keys SPCA all the way down in Key West. And they, they had gotten every animal out of both of their facilities and had moved them to safety at, to points way further north. So these folks have, have been through this. They know exactly what the drill is and they, they mobilize the effort really quickly. And, and the, other, the other really upside of that, I think, is that by being prepared themselves, it puts them in a position to be able to help one another. Uh, I spoke to, to uh, when I spoke to Christopher Agostino at the Human Study of Broward County as they were preparing for Hurricane Irma, he had already gotten a phone call from Patty Mercer at the Houston SPCA offering to send crews to help with animal rescue. And, and they were still in the midst of, of recovery themselves in Houston. So that's that's what happens in this industry when people work together. There, there's, a, there's a tremendous benefit to building that network and really having that type of relationship with your colleagues around the country. Folks are, are very, very willing to, to reach out and help. For, for folks in Houston who are still really struggling to offer to help folks in Florida, to me, that's, that's, that's the essence of what SAWA is. It's the essence of what the animal welfare movement in the United States is and should be. That is amazing. That's really, really great news. And and it just shows how we are adapting to working together much more collaboratively. Historically, years and years ago, we may not have been the most collaborative industry out there, but I definitely think lots of bridges have been built and lots of bridges have been crossed. And that's just another example of that. Absolutely right. I think it's it, it, it's the greatest advancement. I think it, I, I, I joke all the time that social media has been both the best and the worst of things. You know, it's in, in some ways I, I joke that it is an, it's an, it's an enabled passive aggressive people to become more actively aggressive. But at the same time, I think it's really enabled folks who are willing to work together and, and really put, even if they do have petty differences, to put them aside in a situation like this and, and, and really come together and, and, and work for the what's in the best interest of the animals that we care so deeply for. So, Jim, if folks are interested in finding out more about SAWA, how would they do that? They can come to our website. It is SAWA, S-A-W-A, network.org. We would love to have them visit us. And if, if, if anybody has any questions, they're certainly welcome to reach out to us with an email or a phone call and we're happy to answer any questions we can. Again, our real strength, I think, is we do a lot of professional development, a lot of training, a couple of great conferences a year and all of that. But our real strength is in the network. It's really having that group of friends and colleagues that, that you can reach out to when you, when you have a need and that you can respond to if they have a need. 
It's a, it's a, a that to me, I, I joined Sawa over 30 years ago, and I can honestly tell you, Stacey, if it had not been for that, there the odds of my still being in this business 33 years later, pretty slim. <laughs> so the, the, the network has really supported me personally and professionally throughout my entire career. Um, there, there are many, many people. I, it would take us many, many more episodes for me to name all the folks who have, 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 have bolstered me and have held me up and, and, and helped me sort of stay in this field and, and continue to do the work that I try to do to benefit people and animals and community. Wow, that's just wonderful. Jim, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, gosh. Um, all I can say is if you live in a disaster-prone area, be sure and, and develop your, your own disaster plan. It's really important that you, you know what supplies you need and that you have a place to go should you need to evacuate. And if you're not in a disaster-prone area, then please reach out to folks who are and offer whatever help you can. Jim, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show today, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Absolutely. Look forward to coming back, Stacy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 